If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We'll begin our time reading from verse 4, but the focus of our study tonight will be verses 9 and 10. But again, we'll be starting our time together reading from verse 4. So again, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. May the Lord implant His eternal Word into our hearts. Verse 4, we read, For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the land which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Verse 9. But beloved, We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister now. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O gracious Father, as we turn our attentions to the preaching and receiving of Your Word. Help us to recognize that to receive the Word is to receive our Lord. And to oppose the Word is to oppose our Savior. We pray that by the Spirit You would do the work that no man can ever do. Form our hearts according to Your Word. Shapen us according to the image of Your Son so that Christ, who is the very incarnate Word of God, would be the very source of our salvation, strength, and comfort. We ask these things in the name of our beloved Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. In looking back to last week's study in verses 4-8, through the great danger of apostasy, we find that it's usually not difficult to get Christian believers to fear for their salvation. Whenever we come across warning passages such as 1 Corinthians 6.9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Or Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God. Or Mark chapter 3, verse 29, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation. These texts, they immediately take effect within our hearts. It does something to us. It does something within us. It does something to us and it makes us take pause to consider where we stand in the balance of eternity. Salvation or condemnation. Condemnation or salvation. These are passages that cause our minds to deal with Difficult thoughts, it puts our theology and our convictions to the test. And Hebrews 6 is no exception to that. The very suggestion that there may be some of you out here right now within the church who are fraudulent believers 
is a thought that's sure to cause a disturbance and a discomfort within the pews. But there's a very good reason for why this is. Although the saints of God can be sure of their salvation, there still exists, nonetheless, a very real and great danger for us. We live in a world that hates God, a world that is perilous to the Christian faith. Now remember, the writer of Hebrews described our lives as a harbor where the current pulls hard out to sea, and if we're not firmly anchored in the Lord, we risk the great dangers of being dragged away. Hebrews 2.1, he writes, Give the more earnest heed to the things of God, lest you drift away. Furthermore, in addition to the great and many dangers that we're surrounded by, friends, isn't it true that we don't have to look very far, but simply within our own hearts to find many things that are naturally opposed to the things of God? Often we find ourselves, our faith, weak in our love and desires for the things of this world to be strong. And so while we can confidently know that the saints of God are firmly kept safe by the power of God, we simultaneously recognize that the Christian life takes place in the context of many dangers and trials and toils and persecution. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 8 is without a doubt one of the most terrifying warnings in all of Scripture. The warning that if you fall away, it's impossible to renew yourself again to repentance. Now, this is not the kind of message you want to be preaching if you plant a church. This is not the type of message that you want to be preaching to plant and grow a church. As a matter of fact, this is a passage that many so-called preachers breeze by simply because they believe it to be too unwelcoming. It's too unkind to the ears. It's harsh. But this severe warning is nonetheless God's Word. It's a warning that's not to be skipped over, but carefully considered. It's a warning that's been divinely designed by God to grab our attentions and to wake us up. It's the kind of warning that's designed to make us realize that He's not talking to our neighbors. He's not talking to strictly unbelievers. He's not talking to the elders or deacons or to our spouses or children, but He's talking to you. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. Now looking at verse 9, what we find here is an abrupt and radical shift from warning to encouragement. A shift from one of the most severest warnings of Scripture now to some of the most encouraging words of the Bible. And it's here in verse 9 and 10 where we find the theme of the confidence, the assurance of salvation. Now before we jump into our actual text, there are two points of study that I want to present to you guys which will then serve as our outline for tonight. <clears throat> and the two points are as follows. First, if you want to jot this down, the first point is warnings and confidence. Second, reason for confidence. Let me say that again. First point is warnings and confidence. Second, reason 
for confidence. Now first, warnings and confidence. Look down with me to verse 9. We read here, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Now again, after giving one of the most scathing warnings of Scripture, the writer begins this contrast by referring to his readers as beloved, a term of affection and endearment. And this really goes to show and reflect the pastoral heart that the writer has, a a heart that earnestly desires to see his readers persevere to the end. And so not only do we see a clear contrast of subject from warning to encouragement, but we see a significant change in the tone. From, it's impossible to renew yourself again to repentance if you fall away to loved ones, valued ones, treasured ones, beloved. He writes, but beloved, we are confident, we are convinced, we are sure of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Now this confidence that we read of here, in regard to the things accompanying salvation, is not some kind of subjective or self-fabricated confidence but rather it's a full and deep and weighty conviction that comes, not on the basis of what the reader feels as right, but one that comes on the basis of evidence. We can better understand this verse to say, we are fully convinced and fully persuaded of the better things. Now the question that presents itself is, what are the better things? What is that? What are the better things? The better things are the things described in verse 4 to 6. The better things of not falling away. The better things of verses 7 to 8 of not being a field that produces thorns and thistles, a field cursed by God who, whose end is to be burned. While all the experiences of verse 4 of once being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gifts of God, becoming partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasting the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, as wonderful and marvelous as these experiences are, at the end of the day may merely be just temporary experiences and not evidences of true salvation. And so what the writer goes on to say, he goes on to say that We're convinced of the better things for you. We're confident that we're not going to fall away. Why? Because you have something far better, something far greater than just mere experiences to look to and to grasp. You have something more sure to hold on to. We're confident that you're not going to fall away because you have better things concerning you. Now, if the writer of Hebrews, if he was so confident about the better things concerning the things accompanying salvation, if he was so convinced of the assurance of their faith and convinced that the group of believers that he was writing to would not fall away, then this begs the question, and you might be already thinking this very exact question, but this begs the question, then why write verses 4 through 8? Why give 
such severe warnings of apostasy and condemnation to his readers when he's so confident, so convinced of their salvation that they'll not fall away? Did he write it to simply scare them? Perhaps to scare us? Now what's his purpose here? As if he expected this very question from us, the writer speaks, the writer adds this to the, to the end of verse 9. He writes, though we speak in this manner. John Calvin in his commentary explains it in this way. Because the preceding sentences were like thunderbolts by which the readers might have been struck dead, it was needful to mitigate this severity. He therefore says that he did not speak in this way as though he actually entertained such an opinion of them. In other words, what the writer is communicating by writing, though we speak in this manner, is saying that he didn't speak in this way as if he really believed that his readers was, were really going to fall away from the faith. And so again, this begs the question, if the writer was so convinced and so persuaded of the better things concerning the salvation of his readers, why warn them of apostasy? Why tell them, if you, why tell them, if you fall away, you will never be renewed again to repentance? Why tell them that? Why tell them, if you bear thorns and thistles, you will be cursed and burned? And the answer to that question is quite simple. It's because of his pastoral heart. It's because of the deep love that the writer has toward his readers. Now, some of you might be confused as to where I got that, but hear me out. The natural tendency within many of us is to look at warnings and confidence, warnings and assurance and immediately think that these two things to be opposites, contradictions. We think, if he was confident, then he wouldn't have to warn them. And if he was so sure of their salvation, then he wouldn't have to warn them with such a severe warning. But the, what the writer is saying here, he's saying this, He's saying, because I am confident, I am warning you. I'm warning you because I am thoroughly convinced. This to say, friends, that severe warnings of God and the full confidence of salvation aren't contradictory but complementary the one to the other. And this is a warning that proceeds in every real sense from a place of love, a warning of love that proceeds from a pastoral pastoral heart. We see here the writer's pastoral heart and the pastoral strategy on full display as he seeks to prevent his readers from falling away, deepening their vigilance and strengthening their faith through the harmony of warnings and confidence. And this is the way that biblical warnings works, does it not? Warnings serving the purpose of preventing apostasy while simultaneously motivating us to perseverance. Now this is exactly what we find Apostle Paul demonstrating in Acts chapter 27. If you can quickly turn there with me, quickly turn to Acts 27. 
And I want to use this passage to clearly demonstrate the point here. And use this as an illustration of sort. In Acts 27, we find Paul, and you guys know this story very well. We find Paul imprisoned on a ship in the midst of a tempestuous storm. In order to spare the lives of everyone on that ship, we find everyone throwing their cargo overboard, leaving the ship empty of food and drifting about. And in every way, from a human perspective, it seems like everyone's destined to die. But I want you to notice what Paul says here in verse 22. We read, And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. So what we have here in this verse is a promise of God. We have God's promise that Paul and everyone on that ship will be saved. Now let me ask you a question. If God had said, Paul, you and everyone on that ship will be saved, do you think that the chances of everyone being saved is high? Yeah, probably. On the basis of God's word, we would do well to believe with 100% confidence and assurance that Paul and everyone on that ship is going to make it. And if that wasn't enough, Paul continues to strengthen that promise in verse 34 by saying, not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And so what we have here is the sure promise that all who are on that ship will make it. Now jumping over to verse 44, to the end of the story, how does the story end? We read verse 44, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. It's not surprising. You see the promise and you see the end, the fulfillment, just the way that God had said and promised. Now what am I trying to get at here? What's the point? How does Paul go from getting the promise that everyone's going to be safe to the fulfillment of that promise with everybody arriving safely on land with not one hair of their head injured? How does he get from the beginning to the end? We find the answer here in verse 30. Look down at verse 30. We read here. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, so there are obviously some that didn't necessarily believe in God's promise, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, now notice this, he says, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So what's happening here? What's the point here? On the one hand, we have the promise that nobody's going to perish. And on the other hand, we have the fulfillment of that promise in everybody arriving on land safely. And so the question is, how in the world did they get from point A to point B? And the answer to that question is this. By Paul telling them, by warning them, that if you leave the boat, you are not going to make it. 
In other words, Paul's warning served as a means to preserve, to preserving their lives as God had promised them. And the theological message or the application that we find here is this, is that the saints of God, Christians, heed the warnings of God and persevere. Genuine faith in Christ does not fall away as a response from biblical warning. But it drives the Christian believer to endure, to persist, to persevere. This is the Christian pilgrimage, is it not? That we're saved by God in Christ Jesus through the Spirit. It's God who forgives us of our sins and clothes us in His righteousness, the righteousness of His Son, and makes us one of His own. And He gives us promises to to take hold of that He will hold us fast and keep us and perfect us until the day of glory. And how does He go about doing that? By saying to us, if you fall away, it will be impossible to be renewed again to repentance. He does so by saying to us, if you're a field that bears thorns and thistles, you will be accursed and condemned. Beloved, it is through the warnings of God that He compels and encourages us to persevere. It's for those of us who are truly loved by God who heed and listen to the warnings of God and believe them to be true and respond to them. This to say that the warnings of God do not cancel out the full confidence that we have in making it to the end. Warnings do not contradict confidence. It does not blot out assurance, but it complements it. And it's this harmony of warning and confidence that produces Christian endurance and perseverance. J.C. Ryle was absolutely right to have written in regard to this very subject that it would have been well for the church of Christ if the warnings of the gospel had been as much studied as its promises. The writer no doubt took upon himself great pains in giving such severe warnings to the people whom he dearly loved. But it was his love and pastoral care that he did it for their good. Hard words for those whom he calls his beloved. And so the contrast in Hebrews 6, 9, but beloved must have been to his readers like a wave of refreshing water, a boost of energy and strength. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. And then he goes on to give the explanatory four in verse 10, which is where we now transition into our second point, the reason for confidence. Now this verse is absolutely critical as the writer explains the objective reason for why he's so absolutely persuaded of the better things. Look down with me to verse 10. We read here, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now this verse is remarkable, but perhaps to some of you a little bit strange. What we find here in this verse is the use of, of a double negative for 
God is not unjust. This is what grammarians refer to as a litotes. And whenever I run into one of these, I always think of my Latin professor who would always say that whenever we come across a litotes, give close attention to the author's single point. Which in this case, that single point is this. That God is just. We find here that it's the justice of God that gives reason for confidence. If we can simplify verses 9 and 10, we can read it as such. We can read it as, we are confident of the better things. Why? Because God is just. Now what seems strange here is that this verse speaks of God's justice and not His grace or mercy or long-suffering or patience or love. Because more often than not, it's the justice of God that actually doesn't bring us a whole lot of confidence or comfort, does it? Right? When we pray for comfort or assurance for our souls, rarely do we ever pray for God to be just toward us. That sounds like suicide. Rather, it's when we truly understand God's justice that we're driven to pray for God's mercy and not His justice. But we clearly read here in our passage that the very reason for why the author is convinced of the better things concerning you and your salvation is because of God's justice because God is just. This to say that the foundation of confidence of the better things belonging to salvation is not because of you per se, but because of the character of God. Furthermore, we read here that the writer is fully convinced of the better things because God is just, and He's just to do what? He's just to remember. The justice of God, it it manifests itself in Him remembering what His people have done and continue to do. And this theme of God being a God who remembers shouldn't come to us as a shock as we often see this woven through Scripture. Psalm 136, 23, we read, It is He who remembered us in our lowly state. Exodus 2.24, so God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Psalm 103.14, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And so what the writer is trying to get, get us to understand here is that his confidence and our confidence rest solely in the fact that our God who is just is the God who remembers. This is the very idea that the writer is appealing to. That we are to be fully convinced of the better things, the things accompanying salvation, because He is just and He will remember. And He will remember what? Verse 10, if you look down. He will remember your work and labor of love. Now, if you toot that reform trumpet all day long, or if you have a little bit of Luther in your veins, I can imagine that verse 10 probably doesn't sit very well with you at the moment. It didn't with me. 
If this wasn't our text, and if I were preaching this to you without this text, now we're preaching to you that the very reason you ought to be confident and assured of your salvation, that the confidence of your assurance was dependent upon God remembering and seeing your works, you would probably think that you're in an Arminian church. And this would probably be the last time I preach from this pulpit. But this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, is he not? That he's confident that the saints of God are going to make it and persevere to the end because God remembers all their works. Now before we move on, for those of you in here who do feel that tension in verse 10, there's a very simple lesson that you need to be reminded of, and it's this. That whenever you come across a passage of Scripture that's hard to digest, you must be very careful of your own heart and your own thoughts. If there's anything that's hard to digest, if there's anything that seems to be off or wrong, you must remind yourself that it's not Scripture, but you. Now with that side comment being said, How do we make sense of verse 10? Or perhaps the question that we should be asking is, how is verse 10 not a works righteousness salvation? How is verse 10 not the Roman Catholic doctrine of the meritorious character of good works unto justification? And the writer helps answer these questions by providing us some key contextual clues. First, where does the work and the love and service come from? Where, what, what's the root that's at work here? Notice in verses 11 and 12, which we'll dig deeper into next week, we, we, we read, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those, and here it is, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The source of the work that's being done and are being demonstrated is, demonstrated is not found in their own sense of self-righteousness, but their faith. These, are works, these works are the fruit of faith in their lives. In fact, quickly turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, we read this. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, verse 21, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. In other words, these aren't just general good works, but specific good works. These are works that are fueled by and motivated by and carried out by the Spirit in Christ for the glory of God. So how do you actually do good things that are pleasing in God's sight? How are you equipped then to do these things? The answer is not by self-effort. It's not by self-righteousness. But we read 
that it's the great shepherd of the sheep who's at work in you to do every good work according to His will through Christ Jesus. Meaning, when God states that He will not forget your works and your labor of love, He's not saying that He's not going to forget the stuff that you've done by your own efforts. But what He is ultimately saying is that He's not going to forget your works that are done in faith. He's not going to forget your works and labor of love that's been done in and by nothing else than the very grace that He's provided for you, manifesting itself in you to produce that work which is pleasing to Him. So in saying that God is just to remember to not forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name is to say that God will not forget as the one who provides the very means to do that work. In other words, because God is just, God will not forget God. The very reason for why God is just not to forget is because if it's His power that's ultimately at work within us to work and to do good deeds, then His his commitment to His own glory, it manifests itself in seeing all that which He works in us as pleasing to Himself. Am I making any sense here? God is not unjust to forget your works and your labors of love, Because He is the source of it all. Because He sees Himself in it all. Now second, notice the motivation or the direction of that work. Verse 10, which you have shown toward His name. Which you have shown toward His name. The works described here are the labors of love done not for personal glory, but for the glory of God's name. If God values His own glory, then He must rightfully recognize that which He has been working in them for His glory is good. I love what Calvin wonderfully says. He sums it up so beautifully. He writes this. He sums it up in this way. He writes, God looks not so much on our works as much as His own grace in our works. It is on this account that He forgets not our works because He recognizes Himself in the work of His Spirit in them. Beloved, God's not, He's not oblivious to our works because He sees Himself reflected in our service. If not, what else would God find within us that would move Him to love us except for Himself? It's Christ within us that makes us lovable in the first place. It's the Spirit within us that provides the very strength and compels us to worship God through our works and our good deeds. Works that are acceptable in His sight. Lastly, notice here in verse 10. Who are the works and the labor of love done in the Lord, directed toward? We read at the end of the verse that these works that have been ministered and are still ministering are to the saints, are to Christians, to believers. This to say that 
works and the labor of love that's genuinely rooted in God and are done for the glory of God naturally flow out in service for Christ's church. For the service of your own brothers and sisters that sit next to you, to your left and to your right. Now this brings to mind the first and second greatest commandment, does it not? Our love for God, vertical, and our love for our neighbors, horizontal. Now friends, a good litmus test to gauge the condition of your love for the Lord could simply be answered by asking yourself the question, how am I loving the church? How am I serving my brothers and sisters in Christ? It doesn't have to be public. It doesn't have to be through an official ministry. But the question here is very simple and plain. And it's one that you can and should ask and answer for yourselves. Practical love demonstrated in a congregation amongst the saints is a a sure sign of a healthy church. If we've come to know God and His great love for us, and if we've correctly and rightly responded with gratitude and love toward Him, friends, that love will naturally find expression in sacrificially giving ourselves over to the service of the church and to the saints of God. Theologian Philip Hughes, he writes this, and he does well to write it. He writes, Where there's smoke, there's fire. So also, where there's fruit, there must be life. Beloved, may you be smoky. May you bear much fruit. May this be said of you and continually be said of Pillar Baptist Church that we would be known by the world for our love for God and our love for one another. Now, in taking a step back to see all that's been said, the writer doesn't shy away from the evidence that persuades him and convinces him of the better things that accompany salvation. A sure confidence and assurance of salvation that's rooted, deeply rooted in the just character of God. Now, this is the kind of thinking that's vastly different from shallow, contemporary evangelicalism as we often see today that says, I'm convinced of better things accompanying salvation because I believe. Because I've prayed the sinner's prayer. Because I've been baptized, you were there. Because I've taken communion. Because I'm a member of this church or that church. Because I pray before I sleep and eat. Because I, 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 me, 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 me. But we find here in our passage that this is not the case with the writer. The ground for the writer's confidence is God. It's the grace of God and faith in the Lord that manifests itself in the work and service of good deeds. All of it done in and for the glory of God that then serves as evidence of God's work within us. But before the writer would give such words of encouragement, before he would tell them of why he's convinced of the better things, again, we have to remember that he had to first say some very hard and pressing things. And I would submit to you this day that one of the ways in which God does work in us a full assurance of hope 
unwavering confidence and bold perseverance that stays the course until the very end is not through some easy breezy steps of things to merely think about, but it's by taking us through the throes and agonies of our own souls. It's those who've gone through and wrestled with the warnings, those who've seen the warnings written to them, It's those who've wrestled with the hard things who then come out on the other side with a full assurance that shines like gold. It's just as the great Spurgeon wrote, to trust God in the light is nothing, but to trust God in darkness is faith. This to say, Pillar Baptist Church, that we need to be a kind of people who embrace not only the encouraging things from God's Word, but we need to embrace the hard things also. We have to be the kind of people who clearly understand that the warnings of God are meant for our good. That His warnings complement the confidence and the assurance that we find in our Lord. That they work harmoniously together. We have to recognize that it's the people of God who do struggle and who do fight and wrestle against their sin and against their unbelief that end up taking up for themselves the deepest comforts and assurance, knowing that God sees what's truly going inside within us, that He sees the work that He's done in us. That God is just and it's in His just character and righteousness where we find objective reason for our confidence and our assurance. That because He is just, He will not forget, but He will remember. That we don't stand on the basis of what we can do or what we can offer, but we stand on the basis of what Jesus Christ the Lord has done for us and within us objectively for His glory. Which means that we can now live our lives in full service to God and His people. Motivated for the glory of God. Knowing with full surety that when our works manifest itself, when our labors of of love and of service manifests itself for the glory of God, we can be absolutely confident and assured of our salvation that it is none other than the grace of God which is at work within us. And so friends, the severe warnings of God are the means to preserve us and to motivate us to continue to daily strive to live a life filled with fruit for the sake of God's glory, for the edification of the saints, and for the sake of His name. Now as I draw to a close, if I can briefly address those of you who have yet to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. As we've been reminded time time and time again today that God is the God who remembers. For the Christian, He remembers all and every good work and labor of love done in His name and for His glory but specifically for you unbelievers here tonight, God remembers every sin and every offense that you've committed against Him. And it's your sins against God that rightly condemn you for eternity, for the wages of sin is death, writes Paul. But it's for me to tell you this night that there is hope for you 
that there still remains the promise of salvation for you this day. David writes in Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. There is a way, unbeliever, in which you can have your sins removed and be saved. On the one hand, just as the Word of God assures us that He remembers all things, on the other hand, we also find in that very same Word that in Christ, God forgives and forgets our every sin. Hebrews 8.12 reads, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. It's to Christ, friends, you must look to. And it's in Him you must be found, unbelievers. You must repent and confess your sins. And to, you must take hold of Jesus, the Son of God, as your Lord and Savior. For it's in this Christ who exhausted the cup of God's wrath for sinners that you must come to and believe in. It's to Him that you must trust in and follow. Friends, what? What we find in Christ is this marvelous reality that in Him, God forgives and forgets our every sin. While simultaneously, it's in Him, He remembers our every act of love we ever express for Him. Beloved, what a marvelous grace this is. What a great love He has revealed to us. There exists no greater incentive for us to turn our hearts from this world and its pleasures and rightfully give them to Him who loves us so dearly and so marvelously in Christ. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, we confess if Jesus were not our righteousness and our redemption, we would utterly sink condemned into the very pits of hell by our own misdoings, shortcomings, and unbelief. If Jesus were not by the power of the Spirit our sanctification, that there would be no sin we would not commit. But thanks be to you that you promise those whom you give eternal life to that we shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch us out of your sovereign grasp. Remind us, O Lord, that any other way of salvation that depends on something that we must contribute can never bring true assurance, for we can never be sure that we've been done enough. But help us to simply look to Christ and in Him only, He who is the very pearl of our confidence and the very source of the assurance of our salvation. We pray all this in the one Christ Jesus, who is just and righteous. Amen.